are, we find ourselves as we talk about being, wanting to be present in the town square, that taking faith and putting it in the middle of the town square is a big concept and a big idea. And in that space, especially on Easter Sunday this morning, I want to talk for a minute and introduce a series that we're going to flesh out for the next several weeks together because there's something I believe happening in the middle of the town square that we all live in on both a local and a national level that impacts how our faith and how this message of the gospel is played out. And I would argue that we are living in one of the most confusing times that I can think of related to the issue of how we use our power and how we use our influence in the world. And so you've seen some use of power and influence in Dave's story or in the story that Katie shared this morning. You've seen some of those things, but I would argue that it doesn't take long to turn your phone on in the morning and look at your Twitter feed or to turn on the TV if you watch the evening news, if that's a thing anymore, or to to get the paper and read that and see the struggle around our nation, not only politically, but also in church leadership and in business leadership, the struggle over power and authority and influence and how is it wielded and how is it used. The implications of things like the Me Too movement are significant for leaders across our nation. And that is just one of the many things that is creating a very um, new and in a way confusing power struggle in our world today. And my concern is that the next generation of children, of people are growing up wondering, what does it look like? to exert power or to have power, to exert influence and authority in our world today. It was Andy Crouch just this week in the Gospel Coalition um, blog. He wrote an article in which it was called, he said, it was called this. He said, it's time to reckon with celebrity power. And in this article, Crouch wrote about three Christian leaders who just this past week, last week, were accused of various um, inappropriate relationships vicariously kind of through the Me Too movement. And two of them stepped down. One, you know, strong, you know, fist in the hand said, I didn't do this, fist on the ground, didn't do this. And just this past week, three, let alone what happened the week before that. The question is, what, do, what happens to people in power and authority, and how do we use that power and authority? Not only in the Christian world, but we have to speak about the reality that we live in a, a world where the term evangelical has actually become a political term, not just a, a Christian or religious one. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because I could get uneasy, and I, I get that, but I do need to address that if we're going to take faith into the town square. That in the town square of our nation today, the idea of being evangelical has tremendous baggage and struggle with it. In fact, just this title of this article alone from The Guardian on December 15th by Daniel Jose Camacho summarizes the issue. He wrote this article that said, The days of right-wing evangelical swaying politics are numbered. The subtitle is this, once deemed the moral majority, white evangelicals are increasingly looking like they will be an immoral minority in the landscape of American politics. One news anchor said to a politician just this week, help me understand this apparent hypocrisy by your evangelical brothers and sisters. They seem to just be choosing policy over piety all of a sudden. When it suits the politics, the piety is great. And he referenced um, Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky saying, in your party, they wanted his impeachment during that moment. But now, he's saying, when it doesn't suit the politics, he goes on, the piety is easily excused. And he says, and that is hypocrisy. They have made this, that is, evangelicals have made this morality, this piety, their currency. And this is why, he says, tongue-in-cheek, they are better than I am, because their faith comes first. And then he asks, where is it now? And whether we like it or not, This is the national conversation. This is the issue that our 
children are facing at school that we face as we wake up into the town square, whether we like it or not. And on Easter Sunday, to me, I don't know if there's any better Sunday to begin a conversation around this issue of power. Power, how is it used and where does it come from and how is the influence of power channeled and moved through our world today because it is incredibly, incredibly confusing. And I'm going to argue that there are two ways that power can be used. One is very intuitive and natural and instinctive and comes without much training and background, but it actually leaves us like a black hole sucking the life out of us and leaves us at the end of our days with very little at all. And another way to use power is actually incredibly counterintuitive. And this is the way, the secondary way is what I see happening in the life of Jesus. And this is, I believe, the story of Easter as well. That when Jesus came, die on the cross, be buried in the grave, and raise up in power, breaking the power of death, he actually modeled for us a brand new way to see how we should use our influence, how we should use our power, how we should use our authority that is expressly, expressly Christian. Not Republican, not Democrat, not Tea Party, not anything else, but expressly Christian. And so to that, I want to speak with you this morning. And I invite you to turn to a New Testament letter written by one of the followers of Jesus called Mark. Um, If you have a Bible with you, I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible with you, it's no problem. There's a Bible in the pew around you. But um, Mark chapter 10 is the second um, letter in the New Testament. So it's in the right two-thirds of your Bible. And if you open up the New Testament, it goes Matthew and then Mark. And Mark chapter 10 is where we're going to open up and begin and I'd like, to, I'd like to just show this story, and I think it's a fairly self-explanatory story of the issues of power and authority and how it is played out in the two ways that power can work in our world here today. All right, here we go. Mark chapter 10, verse 35. And then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him, Jesus. Teacher, they said, We want you to do for us whatever we ask. (laughs) Isn't that a great way to start a conversation? Imagine how many parents or bosses or teachers would love that. You walk into the office, hey, do you mind, uh, this morning I want you to do whatever we ask. Just think for a moment how well that would go. So Jesus is patient with them. Look at verse 36. He says, what do you want me to do for you? He asked. So so James and John, for, for some background, they've been thinking. And they actually have a good mom. Their mom had been thinking. And moms... Uh, moms who want power for their sons are dangerous people, by the way. I can say that in general. Uh, don't draw that down too far. Anyway, moms who want power for their sons can be manipulative, can be power hungry, and can figure out ways to make things happen. So here's what had been happening. Uh, James and John had been sitting there, and they'd, they'd been walking with Jesus in the inner circle of Jesus for, for a little while now. In fact, it, it had been becoming such a big thing that Jesus was going everywhere and the crowds were coming to him. And imagine for a minute, like this didn't happen all the time. So like they weren't always out with Jesus and sometimes they needed to come eat and I'm sure they had weekends where they went back with mom and did their laundry or whatever, you know, and, um, you know, ate together. So they're with mom, James and John are with mom and mom's here and because mom hears things because she's a part of whatever group, you know, that moms talk to one another and all the other moms are saying to, like, You're, how are James and John doing in Jesus, you know, inner circle? Like you're big stuff now. Like you've made it Big time, like you're the mom of one of the two disciples who is with Jesus, who's bringing all the crowds. Like, you know, of course, like you know where this goes, right? Like people with that kind of power build kingdoms. 
Like, there's a future here for you, and there's a future inheritance available for you. Like, the, 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 your future is incredibly profound and incredibly bright, and you can see the conversations going on behind the scenes. In fact, in the Gospel of Matthew, this same story is told, and it's told from the story from the angle of mom. James and John's mom is the one who comes and asks the question that James and John are about to ask. So the mom is involved, and James and John are involved, and they're beginning to think, we know how this goes. People with authority like Jesus and power like Jesus. If you want to secure a better future, because he's going to win, he's going to be the president, he's going to be the CEO, and there are going to be people who follow him, it is better for you now, it is better for you now to become a part of his inner circle, and you know that people in authority pick their cabinet, pick their vice presidents, they pick their advisors, they pick their executives, and if you can become one of those people, your future, because of his popularity, is going to be set. And so this is what's going on for them. So they come, we want you to do whatever you ask. To which Jesus says, what do you want from me? And here's what they say in verse 37. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Verse 38. <laughs> you don't know, you don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? Uh, we, we can. They answer. I mean, it's the right answer. Like, whatever, sure. Whatever. If you need us to drink something and baptize, that doesn't seem too hard. I can drink and be baptized. Jesus, of course, means a little bit more than that. And Jesus said to them, well, you will drink the cup I drink. And what he means by that is you will die in the same way that I will die. You will be martyred. You'll be killed for your faith. Like, that is a prediction of how all of the disciples were to die for their faith. So actually, yes, you are going to die. You will be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with, the same allusion to your future death. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared, which didn't really address the underlying problem. It just said, no, you can't have those positions. And then verse 41 when the ten, because there weren't just two disciples, but there were twelve, and so when the other ten, verse 41, heard about this, they became indignant, angry, like, what? Why would you, you would do this, James and John? And I can assume that there's argumentation happening, there's conflict in the little band of disciples. So Jesus says, we can't have this happening, let's all get together, call a family meeting, and in verse 42, he lays out a summary statement on it, on how in the world power is, works in the world in which we live. And this is the one angle of power that is something that you and I are very used to and very accustomed to and requires almost no thinking whatsoever because honestly we are all very good at doing it this way in verse 42. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Pause it right there in verse 42 for a minute. What Jesus is saying here is, he's saying there is an approach to how you use your influence, how you use your power, that I'm simply calling the Lord it over approach. And this is an approach, he says, you already know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. You know how this works. You have seen this before. This is what it means to lord it over. And what we learn about lording it over is that when you use power like this, when you're lording it over, this kind of power creates a distance between me and the other person. 
In other words, this kind of power, when I use my power to lord it over you, I can tend to think that I'm not accountable to the same rules and regulations that you are. That I remember as a dad, and I never do this now, but I did when the kids were younger, but I never, let me emphasize again, I never do this now. When the kids only can have one cookie for dessert, right? Later on, dad, because he has more power and control, he can actually get another cookie without anyone noticing. But if the kids were to do that, they would be in trouble, but not dad, because there's distance, right, between me and the rules that I lay down for my kids in that way. And, and power can create a distance. Emphasize, I never do that now. Used to do that back in the day. Again, never do that now. But power and roles of power can create distance. And this is why even psychological research tells us that those who are more powerful and more wealthy tend to think that the rules don't apply to them. Speeding, tax laws, they don't apply. Like, I'm a little removed from that. I know that applies to the common people, but do you know who I am? Excuse me, do you know, excuse me, do you know who I am. Power creates distance naturally. It does, and that's just instinctive. It just is an instinctive reality. Power also does this, and power corrupts. When that distance is there, that distance allows me to do things in this space between me and you that you can't question me about because you're not close enough to me to question it. This is where things like the Me Too movement thrive. Because I can do things behind closed doors that no one may know, and no one has the ability to hold me accountable to it, and this kind of power corrupts. It was back in the 1880s where this phrase, and you'll be familiar with this if you know this, this idea of power at all, Lord Acton was actually a historian who penned one of the most powerful phrases about power that is passed on from generation to generation. He was writing to the Archbishop of England at the time. The Archbishop of England was writing historically about popes and their abuses and their corruptions. Okay, this is not in our generation, just know this. This archbishop was writing about how, you know, great things happened in the history of the church, and, and Lord Acton said, listen, let me raise my hand a minute and talk to you. You are, not, you are not telling the whole story of history. There are abuses, there are corruptions in the papacy that you are not addressing. And it's as if the archbishop of England said, but the office justifies their abuses. I mean, come on, think of all the good things they did. Why do we have to talk about the bad things? And Acton's point is that if you're going to act like that, need to know this, power corrupts, and it gives people license to do things that they should not do. In fact, Acton wrote it this way back in 1887. Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. You may have heard that before. Great men are almost always bad men because of the distance created between them and the people that they are working with, and that corruption happens right in that space. He goes on to write this, there is no worse heresy than that the office sanctifies the holder of it. That is the point at which the end learns to justify the means. In other words, yeah, I know that they did bad things, but come on, they're the Pope. I mean, I know, I know they do bad things, but come on, they're the whatever, the executive. Come on, yeah, I know, I know. They're the leader, I know they shouldn't have, but, it's, but think of all the good things they do. It's that the office justifies the behavior. And this is what Jesus is saying, that you know how this works? Come on, you know how this works? Power corrupts. Power creates distance in between us, and power becomes ultimately self-serving in this model. That you exist to serve me if I have more power. That this kind of power, the lording it over approach, says the more power I get, the more people I have serving my interests and doing the things that I want them to do for me. And you exist to serve my greatest benefit. And this, by the way, is just intuitive. I saw it uh, recently here on my youth soccer team. 
Just this past week, we began our soccer season, and at the end of practice, we had a time to uh, scrimmage one another. And there was an older kid and a younger kid on the team who wanted to play in the scrimmage the exact same position. So there's one position for them, and the older kid, as they both kind of walk over to that part of the field, he says, hey, you go play over there. To which I know the personality of the younger kid. He actually likes to stand up for himself. But because he knows this other kid is actually in a grade above him, he has more, what, power. He yields and moves over to the other side. And instinctively, no one felt there was anything wrong with that, even though there was everything wrong with that. That's using your power to serve you, not to serve those around you. This is why it is so instinctive. And this is why Jesus says to the disciples, I know why you're coming. James and John, I know why your mom talks to all the moms around here. I know what's instinctive to you. Use your power to serve yourself. You know how it works. You've seen it. You've seen it. But Jesus says something very different. And it's a game changer for how power and influence and authority is used. And he says it in the next verse. Verse 43. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and and to give his life a ransom for many. That is amazing. The other approach that Jesus is recommending is not the lorded over approach, but the, I'm going to call it, for lack of a better term, the serve it under approach, where the approach to leadership and power and influence and authority is I'm going to serve under your interest. I'm going to look, what, I'm going to ask you the question, what can I do to help you? How can I serve you as your neighbor? What are the ways that I can lift you up and get under you to support what you are doing? That Jesus came, as he put, put it here, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. If you are a business leader, by the way, I want to encourage you to try something this week with your staff. This week at our staff meeting, we asked the question, what does it mean for us as a staff to flesh out this principle at Grace Point Church as GPC staff? What does it mean for us not to be served, but to serve? And we stared at each other for a little while, like you're staring at me. I don't know. It's a good question. What does it mean? We had a great conversation about it. It is, a, it is a profound question to begin processing. What does this mean to yield and wield our power and authority very differently? And Jesus came to set this up. And this is what I want to talk about for the next eight weeks after this. There's eight principles, eight teaching principles that Jesus extends on this foundation. The foundation is that our power and authority comes because, not because we gather it all to ourselves, but because we use it in service to those around us, because this is what Jesus did, and as we will flesh that out over the next several weeks together. But Jesus makes this point, I came not to be served, not to serve, but to be served, (laughs) the other way around. Got it. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve, right? But he also finishes a statement, and he says this, and to give my life a ransom for many. And this is the message of Easter, by the way. This is the message of Easter. This ransom word is used in the slave market. If you imagine an old ancient slave market, and you go in and buy a slave there, whether we like that market or not, and certainly we don't do that now, but just that was the language around that time. And you purchase the slave from where they were going to go to somewhere else. This is the language that Jesus used for you and for me. That we were, and the, the New Testament tells us, we were slaves to sin. And Jesus purchased us from that space. 
He bought us back from that. And this is the essence and the heart of his service. And this is where power comes from, is buying back this reality. Now, I want to say this, too. Here at GPC, and if you've been around, you've heard me say this, we're not asking people to believe in belief at GPC. If you're in the town square, you're engaging with people who um, are atheists, people who are struggling with working a world that works with the supernatural. In fact, I had a great conversation several, well, several recently here with people who just said, I can't, I can't reconcile this idea of faith with the, with the world in which we live now. And I get that. So we have to have the conversations. We have to be clear as a church. We are not just asking people to believe in belief. We're not just asking you to believe in the, the good feelings of, you know, helping kids learn literacy or helping, you know, Dave connect or Dave help. We're not just asking people to believe in good feelings about things. We're saying we think Jesus was actually real. We're asking people to respond to Jesus as a historical person. And so on Easter Sunday, I have got to, I've got to speak to this issue briefly here, and that is this, the historical Jesus. When, when I talk about Jesus, when I talk about Jesus coming and what he has done to be a ransom for many, I, I want you to know this is where my faith anchors to. Not just to a, an idea or a concept about Christianity, or not just to great ethics, if you will, or morality. It's deeper than that. It's better than that. My faith comes back to a real person who walked the planet. And so let me ask you a couple questions, and I'll, I'll keep it briefish and respond to them. A couple questions I ask did Jesus actually walk the planet? And I will, I will tell you that there actually is no serious, even atheist scholar who would argue otherwise, that Jesus walked the planet. That, that's hardly even a conversation to have. In fact, if you say he didn't, that's a really challenging position to hold, even if you're an atheist. Very difficult thing. So it's, it's an easy thing to start with. Jesus walked the planet. The question becomes, did he actually die? So on this Easter Sunday, we are celebrating the resurrection of Jesus, which is great, but if he didn't die, by the way, then he wasn't resurrected. So you may or may not know, there's a theory called the swoon theory that says, well, Jesus actually was beaten up pretty bad, but man, the cross didn't crucify him. Like, he just was, like, concussed. He was, like, out. But he just kind of resuscitated in the grave. I mean, that's what happened. So you have to ask the question, did he really die? And to which I'm going to spare you some of the details of the resurrection account, but you need to know this, that there was about 39 lashings that were given by the Roman um, soldiers to the body of Jesus with leather um, strands that were tied up with bone and glass and different shards of metal and things like that, meant to rip the flesh off of the body from the back of the, the neck, top of the shoulders, all the way down through the back of the buttocks or the back of the legs, all the way down to the point where the spine is exposed. And as one doctor says, there are quivering, quivering ribbons of bleeding flesh. Many of the organs were exposed just in the process of the beating before you even got to the cross. Many people died before they even got to the cross itself because their back and their flesh was pulled and ripped apart every time that one of those lashings came in. It was brutal. And then on the cross, a five to seven inch nail was nailed right through the medial nerve in, our, in the, the wrist here. And it would be similar to apparently taking your funny bone with the pliers and squeezing it until it pinched and snapped right apart. That kind of pain that actually created a new term for pain that we now use all the time called excruciating pain. E-excruciating, that's a Greek preposition meaning from, from the cross is where that came from. This is a kind of pain that is described only as pain that comes from the cross. And then as the, the crucified victim would stand there, be there, uh, nailed with hands and feet to the cross itself, heaving up and down to try to breathe, ultimately you go from pain to pain, from pain to pain to try to get a breath of air. 
the ultimate cause of death is asphyxiation. And just to make sure that Jesus was dead, the Roman soldiers put a spear in his side and blood and water flowed. You should know this, that no one has ever survived a crucifixion. Just isn't the way it's done. In fact, this is the way that Romans killed people. They were professional executioners on the cross. And so there is almost zero debate about whether Jesus died. There's almost no one who can imagine a world in which anyone survives the Roman crucifixion. It just is brutal and terrible. And so it is an easy case to make that Jesus walked the planet and that indeed he was tortured badly to death and died on that cross. Then the next question is this, well, was the tomb empty or not? And here's what we know, and uh, keep it short on this one, but there was a, a man named Joseph of Arimathea who was actually a member of the ruling council called the Sanhedrin. He said to the rulers, I want Jesus' body. I want to take it to my place. The gift of that to us is that we can go to, and those Jews in the early time, they could walk down to Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. This is not a mass burial place. This is a, an address, a registered grave. We could all go see Joseph's tomb and see if the body is there because these crazy Christians are saying the body isn't there. And so all we need to do is go to Joseph's tomb. He wasn't there was the tomb empty. The narrative, by the way, the conversation in the early church was always what happened to his body, not whether the tomb was empty or not. And so there's very little discussion even about was the tomb empty, thankfully, for Joseph of Arimathea as well as other reasons. And then we have to ask this, did he really appear? Like, did Jesus really appear? Did he just kind of, did, did the disciples steal the body? You know, there was an argument that says he stole the body and they, they went away. And I'll say this, Jesus appeared to hundreds of people. In fact, uh, Lee Strobel in his book, Case for Christ, said that if you take all the accounts of all the people who saw Jesus, hundreds and hundreds of people, 500 at one time, if you took all the accounts of them and invited everyone up to do a cross-examination in the court of law and gave each one 15 minutes for a cross-examination, it would take 129 hours of testimony of individuals seeing Jesus, testifying again and 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 again, and again, and again that Jesus was seen after the resurrection. And so... To me, if I want to get rid of all that, that's a pretty big thing to get rid of. One or two, five, ten, fifteen, twenty, hundreds is a whole other thing, a whole other animal. It's amazing the amount of material we have evidentially behind who Jesus was. And finally, I'm going to ask this question for me, and that is what changed in history? Many of you were alive. Some of you are still processing 9-11, what happened in history since 9-11. When big things happen in history, Pearl Harbor, 9-11, what have you, things change in society. And the question becomes, what happened and what changed in society after Jesus' resurrection? The disciples who were fearful became fearless, number one. People like James, who were Jesus' brother. In John chapter 7, we read there that even Jesus' own brothers didn't believe him. And then all of a sudden, after the resurrection, James, Jesus' brother, says that he's God. I'm going to lead the church. That is crazy. Saul or Paul had a conversion experience. It's crazy. And I don't know if you ever thought about it this way, but in our Bibles, in the Old Testament, there's groups of people called the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Ammonites, you know, all kinds of ites. The question is, where did they go? Because of all the ites in the Bible, the Jews, Israelites, are really the only people group that remained. Kind of interesting. The question is, why? Why, of all the people groups, of all the ites, are the Jews or the Israelites, the only ones who remained? And the short answer is because their social structures and their systems were stronger than the Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Canaanites, etc.ites. Okay? 
their systems, their social systems, kept them together as a people throughout thick and thin. Their order, their, sacri- their system of sacrifice, etc. When the day of worship was changed from Saturday as a Sabbath to Sunday, and thousands of Jews who for generations had been used to worshiping on Saturdays made a change? That's news. When thousands of Jews who had been in the social structure of Judaism all of a sudden were like, we no longer have to offer the sacrifices of Judaism. When thousands of Jews were like, we no longer have to obey the Mosaic law. Why? Not because they hated all good grief. This is what kept them together as a people. This was their identity. This is what allowed them to continue. Why? Because of Jesus. Because the resurrection actually happened. In fact, I will argue for you that there's actually, in my estimation, no more historically, no more ancient event that is more historically attested to than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so when we talk here at Grace Point Church about faith and believing, and I introduce this idea of power and what Jesus says, I want to tell you, I'm not just trying to give you ethics. I'm not just trying to give you morality. I am basing this teaching on someone who actually walked the planet. Someone who was here, who died a brutal death on the cross, whose burial was chronicled, whose resurrection is is chronicled, and whose impact on the world is significant, broad, and wide, to the point that it's ironic today that the church still exists, even though the Roman Empire doesn't. Amazing, amazing reality. And so, I want to ask this question to you. What do you believe? What do you believe? What is it that bears the weight of your soul at the end of the day? What do you look in the mirror and say, you know what, this is my thing. This is my foundation. This is my space. I'm going to put the weight of my life on this. To me, it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the weight and the strength of it, and then all that he teaches is so beneficial and helpful on top of that. But to me, I'm not asking you to believe in belief. I'm not asking you to believe in faith. I'm not asking you to believe in what mom and dad or what I say. I'm just asking you to look at Jesus. And then ask the question, what What do I believe? And and what can bear the weight of my soul? And I would argue that at Easter time especially, Jesus, death, burial, and resurrection is some of the best news, historically verifiable news that you may ever hear. And I want to invite you to consider Jesus, his claims, his resurrection, and his teachings. I also want to invite you to continue to come back as we explore those teachings. And I also want to invite you in a moment to continue to sing with us as we celebrate more of the reality of the resurrection. For now, will you join me as we pray together? Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the chance to be together this Easter Sunday morning to stop and pause again around the person of Jesus Christ and who he is. We thank you, we thank you, we thank you for the reality of the resurrection and the chance to step into that again and see the miraculous reality of this moment and space and time. And I pray that as we jump into this new uh, series, as we consider power and authority and influence, that you can help us to follow Jesus well through each of these 
teachings that we will have and through each of the ways that we as business leaders, as men and women, husbands, wives, students, classmates, leaders, athletes, musicians, friends, engage with each other with the power and the influence that we have. And so this morning especially, we want to stop and thank you for the good gift of your son Jesus Christ, that he came to life again, that we can celebrate this Easter Sunday morning. And for that, we will thank you, we will thank you, we will thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.